the, the name of the message is the apocalypse. And, you know, we won't talk about the apocalypse the whole time, but I just inserted it uh, in a certain way, which is why I played those songs. And this can be shocking to our thinking because of how we, we define things. And I'm, we're not going to start with the apocalypse, but I'll just preface this at the beginning of it to kind of hit you with these thoughts. But if you actually define the apocalypse right, the way you would define it is heaven manifesting in earth. That's the apocalypse. The apocalypse is heaven manifesting in earth. It's for the life that the Father has in himself to be manifested in the earth in its fullness. Right? That's what the apocalypse actually means. Now, that, that's causing us like one of those moments where you take a square and you try and shove it into a circle. Or you take a circle and you try and shove it into a square. And we'll get into this. We'll read, we'll read the actual definition of the word. But our English language turns the Greek word apocalyptus or apocalypsis, which is the Greek word that we get our English word for apocalypse from. We've turned that word into meaning catastrophe or destruction. But that's not what it means in the Greek. That's got nothing to do with that word in the Greek. And so that's what's so interesting about it, right? We think of the apocalypse, and we immediately think of catastrophe and destruction, which is the one of the reasons why we get so upset when we see catastrophe and destruction, because we don't have the right idea of what the apocalypse is. I just want to tell you this, you know, when, and we'll get to this, but you know in the letter of, that, that John writes, Revelation, the context of him writing that letter? Do you know he's writing that letter to a bunch of people who are stressed out about all the catastrophe and destruction that they're seeing in the earth and that they're experiencing in their personal lives? Do you realize that he writes to them about the apocalypse because he thinks that's going to comfort them? And so if they were suffering because of the catastrophe and the destruction they saw, I can promise you hearing about more catastrophe and destruction would not comfort them. <laughs> but hearing about the life of the Father manifesting in the earth would comfort them. <laughs> right? And so we'll get into that, but I, I want to finish, finish up with, with what we started building last week. And so we'll, we'll rehash these verses um, from Hebrews chapter 6, which was the end of what we started talking about last week. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 is where we'll begin. Um, and this is, this is the author of Hebrews referencing Abraham and what it looked like when God promised Abraham and then connecting it to God having promised us something also, and um, how we should look at what he promised, um, or the power of the promise. And so Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. See, isn't that kind of a strange kind of a thing? When you could swear by no greater, you swear by yourself. So God swore by himself. That sounds like a strange kind of a thing. How do you swear by yourself? Right? What does that look like? Saying, surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Right? So God swore to Abraham. And that did something to Abraham where it filled him with patience and filled him with endurance till the time where the promise could be made manifest. And just to connect people back to when did God swear to Abraham? Because God first come and told Abraham he would be the father of many nations and that he would be exceedingly fruitful. And God said, I am your exceeding great reward. I am your shield and your buckler. That's not the part where he sweared. That's the part where he promised. Right? But then he came later and he swears. So that Abraham could know the promise was immutable or the immutability of the promise. And so you see God later coming and swear, swearing to Abraham when he says, I am the almighty God. That was God swearing by himself. And we see the beginning of God swearing by himself when he puts Abraham to sleep. Right? And then you see the fire and the lamp or the light going through the animals, whichever way you want to describe that. That was the beginning of God swearing by himself. Right? Notice it doesn't say the fire swore by the lamp. 
It describes that as God swearing by himself. That's how it describes it. And so then when God comes and says to Abraham, I am the almighty God, that was God swearing to Abraham by himself. Okay? And so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men swear, or men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, you're the heirs of promise. You understand that? You guys are the heirs of promise. Okay? So wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, you, the immutability of his counsel. The immutability of his counsel. Do you know what his counsel is? His determination to manifest his life in you. His determination to manifest life in the earth. That's what his counsel is, right? It's referencing what he's promised. And what he promised you was himself, and what he promised you was his life. And now he's talking about doing something so you could see the immutability of what he's promised you, or you could see the determination inside of him to promise or to bring forth that which he promised in your life, which is life. Right? Because I promise you, if you can see the immutability of God's determination working life inside of you, listen, you would find a place of refuge and sanctuary as you walked around in the earth. You'd feel comforted. If you saw what Abraham had, the same kind of thing would happen in you that happened in Abraham, where patience would come forth in you, and you would find an enduring strength manifesting in you on account of the immutability of what God has promised to do in you. Right? So God willing, wanting. We say you got to have blind faith. Abraham didn't have blind faith. In fact, you can't have blind faith. It's impossible. Faith is a noun. Do you know what that means? It's a person, place, or thing. <laughs> and so you have to see it. You have to touch it. So Abraham didn't have blind faith. God doesn't expect you to have blind faith. God has shown you something. So that you could see the immutability of his determination to work life in you and to work life in the earth. Right? And God wasn't upset that he had to swear. God wasn't like, well, I already told you, bro. Now just go believe. Do you see that? Do you see that go on in Abraham? And you know why that didn't happen? Because God knows we're just dust. And I don't mean that as a negative thing about our identity. But God knows, right, that we're in this world and that our bodies are made from the earth and we could see death and destruction in the earth. And so there could be some strife or debate or confusion concerning what he's promised. And we see some of that with Abraham. When God told Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, did Abraham say, that's true? What did he say at first? How can that be, Lord? You see how there was some strife and debate as to whether or not the promise was sure? Well, God didn't despise Abraham from doing that. God knew it was sure. And God saw that Abraham had deadness in his body. He saw that he was from the dust of the ground. And so God saw, let me now give this guy something that can show him the immutability or the the certainty that I'm going to bring forth life in him. And that's the swear. So God willing more abundantly, more, more so God wanting to show all of us even more so than what he wanted to show Abraham and actually taking and showing us something that's far greater than what he came and showed Abraham because Abraham saw from afar, but we've seen the thing manifested. And so God, just like he wanted to show Abraham, just like God wanted to persuade Abraham, wanted to convince Abraham that there was nothing that could get in the way of the promise manifesting, and that even in that moment that God spoke it, the promise was already working in him, God willing to show Abraham that, it says God more willing to show us. More willing to show us. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. Strong consolation is 
a comfort that's greater than grief. A comfort that is so comforting that it can even swallow up despair. That's strong consolation. The reason why you say strong is because you could see some things happen in the earth that are very grievous. When you look at the Lord Jesus on the cross being crucified, was that very grievous? Okay, well, he needed strong consolation. He needed comfort in that place, right? And so God wanted us to have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's where we left off last week. If you want to write them down and go and read it with the, the message, you can do that. It's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. Go and read them, listen to the message. But last week, we talked about God blessing mankind in Genesis. Right? And, and what that means, or how it means, that God got down on bended knee and promised himself to mankind or Adam and Eve. He promised his life to us is what he did. And he didn't just promise his life to us in the sense of, I will give you something. He promised everything he has in himself. He promised to us that he would empty himself, that he would lay down everything he has in himself towards the end of our well-being towards the end of providing us with life, towards the end of giving us a safe space, giving us a sanctuary, giving us a place of refuge, towards the end of beautifying us with life. That's what he promised when he got down on one knee. And so that's where we, we left off with, and then we connected Hebrews. And Hebrews would come and say, when God wanted to swear to us, when God saw that there was nothing he could swear to us by that was greater than himself, he swore by himself. And what was he trying to swear to us? What was the swear? His life. So he promised us his life. He promised us himself. And then he wanted us to know the immutability of what he promised and the immutability of his determination to do it. And when he wanted us to know that so that we could have strong consolation or so that we could be comforted and so that every strife or debate or confusion could be quieted or silenced in our hearts, because there was nothing greater that he could swear by than himself, he swore by himself. What do we swear by? I swear on my mother's grave. <laughs> you ever heard that? Yeah. And then in elementary school, we'd be like, but bro, your mom's not even dead. Dang. You just cursed her. But why would we even swear on our mother's grave? You see how we're looking for what could be the greatest thing or the most powerful thing that I could swear by that could convince these people that what I've already said is true. I've already said something, but I see they're not really convinced. They have all these questions, all these doubts, all these disputations. And now what can I say that can now put them to rest to know that what I've promised will be worked or is being worked out? Right? And so... We might say, I swear on my mother's grave so they could see we're serious. We mean business, <laughs> right? I mean, that's why we do it. So when God looked around and thought, well, what could, I, what could I swear by that would really show them that this thing I said to them is serious? He said, well, there's nothing that could, could carry more weight than me swearing by myself. And so he swears by himself. Now Hebrews chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 16, tells us why a person swears. And we kind of already know, but we'll just read it. For men verily swear by the greater. That's like what I just said. They swear by what they think is the most powerful thing or the, the thing that will carry the most weight. That's what they swear by. And then it tells us why. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Right? I know sometimes we get lost in Bible language, in King James language, but I just want to kind of paint this picture for us. You know, when something is promised, I don't know if you guys realize this, when something is promised, there can be a sort of questioning as to whether or not the promise is sure. We'll just use our earthly relationships for now. 
I mean, you stand at the altar and you say, I do, and you promise. I mean, after you stood there and said, I do, did you ever walk away and think that they hadn't held up their end of the promise? I'm just using that as an example. Even with people that, that stay married, there could be times where there seems to be some confusion or question as to the whether or not they're upholding their vows. And so when something is promised, there can be a sort of questioning as to whether or not the promise is sure. There can be things that can cause doubts and insecurities as to whether or not what was promised is coming to pass or not, right? You could have things that could come and question whether or not what's promised is coming to pass or not. You can feel an insecurity inside about whether or not it's coming to pass. You can start having a doubt. I mean, all of us can have that kind of a doubt, right? I mean, I've, there's been many times in my life where people promised me things. And you know what? I've questioned whether it's serious or a, a serious promise or not. Right? And so things can come in. Even, I mean, even in our lives with God. How many of you have encountered things sometimes that you, cause you to question whether or not God's really working in your life? None of us, huh? None of us have ever questioned whether or not God's with us or whether or not he's really working in our lives or whether or not he's really working life in us. None of us have ever done that, have we? So, <laughs> well, that's the whole point. But, but, you see, but see, God promised. And even though he promised, he understood that there could be things in this world and that there was already something in this world that could cause a strife, which means a debate or confusion or a doubtful disputation as to whether or not what he said is actually coming to pass or actually being worked out. Right? And since we mentioned Abraham, and since these, ver these verses mention Abraham, we just talked about Abraham. If, if you look at the life of Abraham, God promised Abraham. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. And yes, the scripture says Abraham was strengthened by faith. He was strengthened by faith. But there was some strife and debate initially in God's promise to Abraham. There was something there that was causing Abraham to think, what will you give me, Lord? Or how will you do that? How are you actually going to sort that out? The, the, the deadness Abraham saw in himself and the deadness he saw in Sarah's body. I mean, Sarah hadn't had any kids. And, and, and even in Sarah, you think she had some strife and debate and doubtful disputation that she could give birth? I mean, she laughed. When the messenger of God, when the word of God came and told her that she will conceive and be with child, she laughed. And so when God promised Abraham initially, it's not that Abraham's like a bad dude not wanting to believe God. But you got to understand, he sees deadness in his wife. And now she, she ain't even young. She's old now. And she couldn't have kids when she was young. And now the deadness in his own body. So there's like some doubtful disputations as to whether or not the, God's promise had, had real validity, real veracity. And that's why Abraham's initial reply is, what shall you give me, Lord, seeing I have no heir? How are you going to be able to do what you've promised? Look at the deadness. The deadness was the doubtful disputation. Now, just like with Abraham, strife and debate and confusion tries to come to us. It doesn't just happen to Abraham. It tries to come to us also. And, you know, it comes to us through the same way that it comes to Abraham, right? Just like Abraham, we could see deadness in our lives and deadness in the earth. I mean, we see that stuff now, don't we? I mean, we see a lot of deadness in the earth right now. Confusion and debate can ensue because of what we see in the earth. Confusion tries to come to us when we see deadness in our lives and deadness in the earth. Confusion and to debate as to whether or not life is working in us and whether or not life is working in the earth. It tries to come to us when we see the wars and the rumors of wars and the tribulation and the corruption we see in government and the deadness we see in our lives or in our family's lives or in our loved one's lives or in our kids' lives. Those things try to cause confusion and doubtful disputation. It tries to bring about strife within us. 
Strife concerning what God's promised us. Strife concerning, confusion concerning, is life really working in me? Is life really present in me? Is life really present in the earth? And is life really being worked out of the earth? How can it be that life is present in me? How can it be that life is present in the earth and being worked out in me and in the earth? Look at all the deadness. And we're the heirs of promise. And so God sees these dudes need something. So they can see the veracity of what I said. And they can see the determination inside of myself and that nothing can keep my determination from coming to pass. That's what he said. You guys following that? And so God, Hebrews says, the reason you swear is to put an end to any strife or confusion or debate. You see there's a debate. You see why there's a debate. And you're trying to put a, an end to the confusion or debate, the debate surrounding whether or not the promise is coming to pass. That's what you're doing. If someone promises me something and I question the veracity of the promise, that's when they might say, I swear. And they would say, I swear, to comfort me concerning the certainty of what they promised. That's why they would do it. And that's what Hebrews is talking about. So God saw he promised us something. And he saw that there, there was death in the earth and that that deadness in the earth was causing strife, doubtful disputation, debate, or that it could cause that. And he wanted to put an end to that strife that could be present because of death. And when he wanted to put an end to that strife, he saw there was nothing he could swear by greater than himself to prove to us that life is being worked in us and life is being worked out of us and life is being worked out of the earth also. He saw there was nothing greater that could put an end to our questions or confusion about whether or not will I be decorated in the fruit of the Spirit. When you're suffering, have you ever thought, will I experience the fruit of the Spirit? Where's the peace? Is peace coming? Is joy coming? Is love coming? When will it come? Have you ever felt that? Well, God wanted to give you something that could now show you that the determination he has to work life in you and to decorate you in the fruit of his spirit, that there's nothing that can keep it from happening. So that you begin to think about there's nothing that can keep it from happening instead of thinking of, is it going to happen? Will it happen? And when he saw that there was nothing greater than himself that he could swear by to convince you of that, he swore by himself. He swore by everything he has in himself. Right? You guys following that? He wanted to show us the immutability of his life coming to pass in us and his life coming to pass in the earth. So he swore by something. That's what he wanted to give us. He wanted to give us a sanctuary, like we talked last week. He wanted to give us a safe place, a place of refuge. He wanted to give us a strong consolation, right? A strong consolation, a place that was so safe that we, when we dwelled there, all of our anxieties and all of our fears and worries could be made still and quieted. That when we went there, we could just feel, oh, I think we all know what it's like to worry about stuff, don't we? Now imagine a place where you go there and the place that you go purges all those things from you. That's a sanctuary. That's what a sanctuary is. And so God wanted to make our hearts still from the storms that we could see raging in the world because those storms are always trying to tell us, they're always trying to cause confusion about what he promised. They're always trying to create doubt about what he promised and whether or not it's really happening, whether or not it has happened, whether or not it is happening, whether or not it shall happen, right? Because some of the language that used in the Bible, I don't know if you realize this, but it's spoken outside of time. We tend to think of past tense, present tense, and future tense, but there's a tense in biblical language that combines all of them in one. It speaks of something that was done, that is being done, that shall be done. And we struggle to see it that way. 
But that's what God wanted us to see. That's what God wanted us to know. And so when God wanted to do all that, because he could swear by nothing greater than himself, he swore by himself. And what it means is that God, what it means when it says God swore by himself, what it means is that God swore by Jesus. Jesus is God swearing. And not just the man Jesus, the man Jesus is involved there. But the life that was in Jesus, the life that manifested in Jesus is God swearing. And I don't mean that's God cussing. (laughs) You'd be surprised the kind of doctrines people try and teach. Well, Greg said that when God cusses, he cusses Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus is God swearing, not cussing, God giving us an oath. Jesus is God, vowing his life is being made manifest in all those who believe and in the earth. That's what it is. It's him swearing to us that what he promised from the beginning, even when he said, let there be light, the thing that was in his heart is coming to pass, right? It has come to pass. It is coming to pass. It shall come to pass. And he wanted us to be certain of that whole thing. So to swear by something, when you look at in the Greek meaning of the word, to swear by something means to invoke a person or a thing as a witness. You're pointing something to be a witness. You're pointing to something so it can be a witness that what you said is happening, will happen, and, and has happened. That's what you're pointing to, right? So when God wanted to swear, when he wanted to point to something to be a witness, what God did was he invoked the life he has in himself. That's his witness. The life he has in himself. He invoked the life that manifested in the body of Jesus' resurrection. That's his witness. He invoked the life that manifested in the body of Jesus' resurrection as a witness of the immutability of his determination to work life in us. The resurrection of Jesus is God swearing to you that he is working life in you. And it's him destroying the power of death to come and try and tell you, is God working life in you? It's him coming to give you a strong consolation, a place of sanctuary, a place of comfort as you walk in this world and you can see deadness in yourself or deadness in the earth or wars and rumors of war. He gave you his life. He manifested his life in the body of Jesus' resurrection to show you the immutability of him working life in you and in the earth. That's what he did. So when God saw, you guys see how death causes a disputation? of whether or not life is working in you? When Jesus was nailed to a tree, do you think that that could cause him to think, is life really present in me? Hmm. Is life really being worked out of me? (laughs) Am I really going to be glorified with immortality? My goodness, it don't look like it now. You see the debate and the confusion that can come? And so when God saw there was nothing greater that could bring an end to the disputation of death's counsel in the earth. When he saw there was nothing greater that could bring an end to the counsel that death was giving all the heirs of promise in the earth, when he saw that there was nothing quite like him manifesting his life in dead bones that could bring an end to the debate, he raised Jesus from the dead. (laughs) You see that? How do you shut up the doubt that death tries to bring to people? You take a guy who's dead and you raise him up out of the grave. So they can see the life that you have in yourself and what that life you have in yourself does even to death. Because that's what God promised us. He promised us his life. The laying down of his life He promised us the pouring out of himself, his life, towards the end of beautifying us. And we could see deadness and think, I don't feel so beautiful. Oh, wretched men that I am. Look at this body of death. Look at what's going on in my life. 
And then God wanted us to have a strong consolation when we could feel the confusion. Look at this body of death. He wanted us to have a strong consolation that his promise was sure, that his life was present, and that his determination to work life in and out of us and work life in and out of the earth was immutable. And when he wanted to give us that, he saw there was nothing that could give us that like him manifesting the life he has himself inside of a dead guy. You see? And now we see his life on display, not just on display by itself, but on display having had the fullness of death and the fullness of death's power to destroy come upon it. And now we see a guy who had the fullness of death trying to destroy him, and we saw there was a life inside of him, even while it looked like he was being destroyed, there was even working life in him. The resurrection is God swearing. That's God swearing. It's God showing us the immutability of His life. The immutability of His life. The resurrection is God showing us the immutability of His determination to work life in us. So that we begin to see that life at work in us present in us, present in this earth, even as we walk in an earth that looks like it's filled with death, death, deadness and filled with destruction. Right? It's God coming to put your minds to ease. And he does it by showing us the, direct, the death and the corruption cannot keep him from bringing forth life in you. It's the death and corruption in the earth is not a sign that God is not working life in you or in the earth. Right? And the resurrection shows that. It's God wanting to put your minds to ease by showing us that. It becomes a strong tower for us. The life of God becomes a strong tower for us because we see death can't keep the life of God from working life in us. And that's what you start living by. You see the substance of his life and the substance of his life becomes a sanctuary for you. It becomes a place of order. It becomes a place of refuge. It becomes your safe place because you see the life God has in himself can even bring forth order out of the midst of chaos, which is what you see his life do in Genesis. When it says there's darkness and chaos upon the face of the deep, nothingness. And then what does God do? Let there be light. And the, what comes forth? Chaos or order? Order. There's even a, a theory in, in physics, it's called chaos theory, where they can even observe a dynamic where order comes forth out of the midst of chaos and they don't understand why. And you know why they don't understand why? Because they don't understand the life that God has in himself, the life that manifested in Jesus Christ, right? And so chaos tries to cause us to think that everything's out of order. How many of you like it when you think everything's out of order? Does anybody feel good? Okay, everybody doesn't like it. Why? Why don't we like it? Why do we even want order? I promise you the reason why we don't like it is because we think it's a sign that life isn't present and life isn't being worked out of us. And God wanted to show us something that could convince us, even if we see chaos, that that's not a sign that his life isn't being worked out of us or being worked out in the earth. Right? That's what he wanted to do. That's what he's trying to do for us. Now, I just want to remind people of these things because we've been talking about them a lot. But, you know, our inheritance isn't only eternal life. And I hate to even say just only because that's, that's an inaccurate word because eternal life is, is so much. But a big part of our inheritance is the earth. I don't know if we realize the effect it has on us to see things going awry in the earth. I don't think we realize that God did something to be a strong tower for us as we see things going like going that way in the earth. So our inheritance isn't only eternal life, our inheritance is the earth. And guys, I, I hope you realize it. We're one with the earth. Like we're one with the earth. You guys know our bodies were taken from the dust of the ground. You know when they do a mineral composite of the dust or the ground and they do a mineral composite of our bodies, the minerals are the same. That's why our earthy bodies need minerals. We were taken from the dust of the ground. One of the reasons why we were taken from the dust of the ground is we are one with the earth. 
And God did that on purpose so that Adam would have dominion over the earth or authority over all creation, all physical matter. That's one of the reasons why Jesus now comes in a dust body, so that he could have authority over all flesh, so that he could be one with the earth that was in death, so that in him having a life in himself that overcomes death, in him being made one with the earth and a creation and a man that's dying, he could bring them up out of that death and give them strong consolation so they could see life is present. You know, Paul says, no man hates his own body. How many of you, when your arm is hurting, think, let me get to the doctor so we can cut that thing off? (laughs) But you don't go, do you? (laughs) Exactly. You know, relationships are one of the most difficult things in human life and and, in marriage specifically. You know, Paul talks about that, you know, with marriage. And I think that, that husbands especially would, would be well served for their own lives and the lives of their families if they wouldn't despise their wives as if their wives are somehow separate from their own body. And that they saw that they're one flesh with their wife. And in seeing that they're one flesh with their wife, if they thought their wife was having a hard time, instead of wanting to despise the wife or get rid of the wife, they would start thinking the way they would think about their own body because nobody's despising or wanting to beat on their own body when it doesn't feel good. Do you know what they're thinking? What can I do to nurture it? What can I do to make it feel better? And I think people, men would be well served to remember that about their wives. That I'm one flesh with them. And if I feel it's going awry with them, The answer is to nurture. Be compassionate. Just like you would your own arm if it's broken. You put it in a sling. You try to keep anything from hurting it. And you're protecting it. No man hates his own body, but loves and cherishes it. That's one of the things that's happened in the world that destroys the power of grace to work in a marriage. Because, you know, we teach in marriage that we're we're separate. That's what the world says about marriage. The world comes to teach you how separate you are. That you're not one. Well, I promise you, if you actually believe you're one with your spouse, you're going to treat them a lot differently when things are going awry. Because you'd never treat yourself that way. I mean, the second something's wrong with you, you got all the medicine, you got everything you need, right? Oh, we got to take care of it. That's how we feel with the earth, because we're one with the earth, because our bodies were made from the dust of the ground. We have an inherent knowing inside of ourselves that we are one flesh with the earth. We love the earth. There's a knowing in our hearts that we belong here. That's why no one feels happy about going to heaven one day. We see the clear blue water. I mean, why do we want to go to the beach and see the clear blue water? Why are we like, that's not. Why do we get so happy when we see a sunset or a sunrise that's glorious? We see the pink clouds that the sun's shining through. What about when we see a fresh snow on the ground? Or if you've ever been like in the mountains of Vail or Aspen and you're like 11,000 feet up and a a blizzard is coming and you, you can actually watch snowflakes bigger than your head slowly falling, falling to the ground right there in your presence. Do you know the thing you feel on the inside when you see that happening? It's like a stillness and a quietness. Why do we love that? Why do we love being in the water? Why do we love looking at the stars? Where does even any of that come from? It's because we love creation. And the reason why we love creation is because we're one with it. There's something inside of us that knows this is our home. And I promise you, if I go home today after church and somebody set fire to my house, I'm going to be upset. Because that's my home. And you know what? My dogs are in there. And I feel one with those dogs. Because we are one. And that's how it is with the earth. The earth is our home. It's It's our inheritance. It's something God gave us as our inheritance. And we have an inward knowing that it's supposed to be ours. And it bothers us if we think something's happening to steal it from us or to destroy it. 
I mean, why do people get so upset about what's going on in the governments in the world? We'll just look at America. Why are we so upset about what's going on in America? Do you know why? Because we think something's being stolen from us. And we think our home is being taken from us. And that's why we get upset. It's the same way with the earth. You can never be happy if you see your inheritance being corrupted. You can't. You can never be happy if you look at the earth and you see all the wars and the rumors of wars and all the corruption and the rumors of corruption everywhere. You can never be happy with that because the thought will come to you that your inheritance is being stolen. That's strife. That's doubtful disputation. That's debate. That's confusion concerning what God promised. You see? You see how that sorts itself out? We can hear a voice trying to stir up strife in us. We can hear a voice saying, has God really said you will inherit the earth? Has God really promised you a glorified earth? What about all this sin and death? What about all this corruption? We've tried to placate that feeling we have by coming and saying, oh, we're going to go to heaven one day. That's where we'll be. And there's nothing wrong with going to heaven and being present with the Lord as we're waiting for heaven and earth to physically collide and we dwell in the earth. There's nothing wrong with that. That is what will be. That is how it will be. But that will never placate us from what we see happening to our home. It will never give us a strong consolation. It will never satisfy us. Right? I mean, we've even come and taught about the apocalypse. Oh, the earth will be destroyed. And we think that's going to make us feel happy. I don't know if you guys realize this, but you know the reason why we could even call the earth our home? Because that's where God's calling home. You think God's going to now allow the place that he wants to dwell to be destroyed? I promise you, he's not. So when we see all that stuff, we need a place of sanctuary. We need a place of safety. We need a place of security. We need a safe space from the anxiety of what we see going on in the world. We need that. We need a safe space from all the corruption we see. We need a place of safety from all the hell we see going on in the world. We need something that can bring an end to all the strife and debate and confusion that tries to come to us concerning what God's promised when we see everything going on around us. We need something that can come and decide the matter for us, right? That we can abide there. And in abiding there, it pushes out the anxiety. And so you might think, well, what's that? Well, we've already kind of talked about it, but this is where we'll get into the apocalypse now. Because the apocalypse has become something negative. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it begins by saying, the I mean, we'll all agree, do you guys all think the Revel book of Revelation is talking about the apocalypse? Okay, glory to God. Then we'll begin with that agreement. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants thing which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, if you're reading the first chapter, it talks about John comes and says to these guys, I, John, your brother and companion in tribulation. Right? Well, that's giving you a hint as to why he sent them their letter. He wanted to give them something that could be a strong consolation to them as they were suffering persecution and as they saw the world being run over and taken over by corrupt people and corruption. And when he wanted to give them a strong consolation, he sends them the letter of revelation. And what he sends to them, he begins by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when he wanted to give these guys a strong consolation from the tribulation they were suffering, John was exiled. You guys know that? He was off on an island by himself. You know what they were doing to Christians in those days? Crucifying them, sticking, on, sticking them on gigantic sticks and making them gigantic candles and just lighting them on fire as lanterns along the streets and such. You think that could cause you confusion as to whether or not God's promise was sure? You think you could wonder, is life really here? Is life really being worked out of me? Am I really going to inherit this earth? Because I'm burning right now. 
You can see how that could be a doubtful disputation. Well, John sees all that, and he gets a vision from the Lord. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now he sends that to the people to be a strong consolation to them in the midst of all of that. And so what John did to give these guys comfort is he unveiled Jesus Christ in their midst. He laid bare the life that Jesus has in himself in their midst. That's what he did when he wanted to comfort them. And so when you, if you're wondering where the connection with the apocalypse is now, do you know what the, the Greek word for revelation is? Apocalypse. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. And so we translate the word apocalypse, or the, 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 the writers of the Bible, they translate the word apocalypse as revelation. Revelation. So is John writing a letter about destruction and catastrophe, or is he writing a letter about the revelation of Jesus Christ? And why would he think that the revelation of Jesus Christ would now comfort people who are suffering? Why would he think the revelation of Jesus Christ would now bring a strong consolation or a safe space to people who were suffering great persecution and who were watching the world just run amok with death and tribulation and corruption? Why did he think that would help? These are some of the things you want to ask yourself as you're thinking about this. But the Greek word for revelation, like I just said, is apocalypsis. It's where we get our English word, apocalypse. Notice, how, how silly do you think it would sound if you said it this way? I mean, what does Revelation 1 start with? The revelation of Jesus Christ. What if we said the apocalypse of Jesus Christ? What? No, I know. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. You know, that would be an accurate statement. It would be an accurate statement, but what, what's been lost is the real meaning of that word. And so the Greek word uh, that we get our English word for apocalypse, when we think of that word apocalypse, what's the first thing we think of? Great catastrophe or destruction? That's the first thing we think of. And we think of it happening in the earth. But the earth is our home. We're one with the earth. We love it. And we've been taught a Christianity that isn't a safe space for us because we've been taught a Christianity that tells us our home's going to be destroyed. And we're just supposed to like it because we're going to be in heaven one day. But we're from the dust of the ground. We're one with creation. We'll never be happy with that. Creation came forth out of the loins of God. It's one with God. God could never be happy with that. That's what we think of. But the Greek word, that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word does not mean catastrophe. It does not mean destruction. The Greek word talks about a disclosure, a revelation, a manifestation, an appearance. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it as a laying bare or a disclosure of truth. The apocalypse, if you wanted to just get literal about it, the apocalypse is literally the revelation of Jesus Christ and the life that he has in himself. That's what it is. It's the revelation of the life of God. That's what it is. Now, do you guys think we have any signs and wonders in the earth or any shadows? about the apocalypse or the revelation of Jesus Christ? Is there anything you see in the scriptures that you think are a sign or pointing to that same thing that John talks about when he says the revelation of Jesus Christ? The death and resurrection of Jesus is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a sign of the apocalypse. And what did the death and resurrection of Jesus manifest to do? To bring death and destruction? And so the death and the resurrection is a sign of the apocalypse and what the apocalypse is all about. And you ought not take your thinking about the apocalypse from anywhere else other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. In, in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 1, the beginning of the book of Revelation, do you know what Alpha and Omega says? I am him 
who was dead, but is alive forevermore. Isn't that talking about the death and the resurrection? Okay, that's the revelation of Jesus Christ. I am him who was dead, but is now alive forevermore. The resurrection of Jesus, what we could say is the first fruit of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the first fruit of the apocalypse. And you know what it is? It's God swearing to us that we will inherit a glorified earth where there's no possibility of sin and death uh, ever manifesting again by him unveiling his life to us in the body of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's God swearing to us. Because he was dead, but now he's alive forevermore. Do you see that's God giving us an oath? Do you see that's God swearing? That when he promised us his life, he promised us something that can even bring forth life out of the midst of death, that can even bring forth order out of the midst of chaos? So that when we saw the chaos, we wouldn't think that it was a sign that order wasn't working or that order wasn't in the earth, but we'd see it as a sign that God has in himself a life that overcomes chaos? That's the apocalypse. We rejoice about the death and the resurrection, don't we? What do we see it as a sign of? Life. So that's the sign of the, the apocalypse, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' body was made from the dust of the ground. It was earthy. Right? He was born of a woman. And so his life came from above. He wasn't of the seed of a, a man, but he was born of a woman. So he had a life that was from the earth, or a body that was from the earth, with a life that was from heaven. His body was earthy. You could even look at the body of Jesus and say that's a picture of the earth. And then what happened to Jesus' body? All the corruption that was in the earth manifested in his earthy body on the cross. All of it. And so all the corruption, the wars and the rumors of war we see in the earth right now that are bothering us, we see all those things raging inside of the body of Jesus on the cross. His body was earthy, the earth is earthy. But in the resurrection, we see it wasn't his body that was being destroyed. It was sin and death that was being destroyed. It was corruption that was being destroyed on the cross. Well, you might say, well, how do we know that? How do we know it wasn't his body that was being destroyed? How do we know that it was the corruption and the sin and death that we see in the earth? How do we know that's what was being destroyed? Well, I'll tell you how we know. He came out of the grave in a body that had no more sin and death in it. So the body was still there, but the sin and death wasn't there anymore. Behold the apocalypse. So what was being destroyed at the revelation of Jesus Christ? What was being destroyed at the revelation of his death and his resurrection? It wasn't his body that was being destroyed. It was sin and death that was being destroyed. And it was God revealing to us the life that he has in himself. Because he saw that death could convince us that life wasn't working in us and life wasn't working in the earth. So then he showed us his life in the middle of all death. He showed us his life with the full manifestation, the full power of death coming against it. And he showed us what his life does to destruction. And now when we see destruction, we see God swore by his life. And we see his life doesn't bow down to destruction. We see life was in Jesus working in him even on the cross. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's God revealing the life he has in himself. So we could see what that life is. So we could have a strong consolation knowing that we have been purged from sin and death. We have a life that's from above. That life can't be held down by sin and death. And you start living like that, right? That's how God brings an end to all strife and debate and confusion. He shows us the promise is sure. And he does it by warring against the fullness of darkness of death in the body of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The manifestation of his life. And what I even want to say is the, the apocalypse, 
I'll just keep using that word because it'll mess people up. And probably no one will understand this message for years because I kept using that word. But the apocalypse has already happened in our hearts. You guys realize that? Do you know why the apocalypse has already happened in our hearts? Because we see Jesus. And we see the fullness of death try to destroy him on the cross. And we hear all the voices saying that life isn't present there and life isn't working there. And then all of a sudden, what do we see? We see Jesus coming out of the grave, the resurrection. That's the apocalypse. It's the revelation of the Father's life. And now we see the Father's life. We see the revelation of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And then seeing that revelation, what that tells us is that life is working in us and life is working in the earth. And the life that's been planted in this earth and the life that's been planted in us, nothing can keep it from coming about. And that's what John was trying to remind these dudes of. Right? Do you know, had, you know who had to first know that would happen in order to even go through it so that Jesus Christ would be revealed to us? Jesus himself. Jesus had to first see the life that he shared with the Father from the beginning. I mean, as our friend Gary Venturella points out, he's probably sitting there this whole time, hasn't heard anything I said, because he's thinking, but the revelation was given to Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which was given to him. It says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. People have come and heard me describe Jesus the man and say, what did Jesus the man believe? So this revelation about the life of the Father, Jesus had to grow in that revelation as a young boy born as a woman. Born in perishable flesh. Because when you have perishable flesh, you can feel weakness. You can hear the doubtful disputation. You can feel confusion. You can feel that the promise isn't sure. And you could need something that could give you a strong consolation about the promise. And do you know what Jesus saw about what God promised? He saw that the life the Father has in himself is an oath because that life even overcomes death in the flesh. And that was a place of refuge for him, a sanctuary, even while he was dying on the cross. So Jesus, the man, first got the revelation of the life of the Father and that he was sharing in that life. And that caused him to rest on the cross so that the life of the Father could be manifested in the resurrection. We could behold the apocalypse. That apocalypse could now be born in our heart and we could see that life is in us. Life is being worked out of us. And life has been sowed into this earth. And life is being worked out of this earth. And nothing can steal our inheritance. Nothing can steal life from us. And that becomes a place that quiets the anxiety. If, if someone wanted to come to me and say, but Greg, there is destruction and catastrophe in the apocalypse. I would say, amen. But it's the destruction of death. It's the destruction of corruption. It's not the destruction of life and all that's good. It's the destruction of death and all that it brought forth in the earth. That's what it's the destruction of. Right? And there, there's actually verses that say that. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes often upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bear, you see how it said the earth receives blessing from God? The earth receives destruction from God? The earth receives blessing from God? But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is near unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So what's going to be burned? The earth? No, the thorns and the briars. And that which produces the thorns and the briars. That's what's going to come to an end. That's what the apocalypse or the revelation of the Father's life reveals. It reveals the end of darkness. Right? It reveals the end of the darkness in the earth. Just like when God said, let there be light, it separated asunder the darkness. That's why when you read the last chapter of Revelation, do you know what it says there? There's no more darkness. It says you don't need the sun anymore. Because there's no more darkness. That's what the apocalypse is. It's the destruction of the darkness. 
And the reason you know the darkness will be destroyed is because you see the life God has in himself manifested in Jesus Christ, the man who was dead in a grave. All the disciples thought he was dead. And when I mean dead, like destroyed, that's it. He's gone. And then what did that dude do? He came out of the grave. How did he do that? He had to have life in him. You see what that life was doing inside of him? That's the same life we have inside of us. That's the same thing that life is doing in us, even now as we speak. Even in Jesus' heart, we see that life producing the fruit of the Spirit in him. The fr- a fruit of the Spirit that was stronger than, than turmoil or sorrow or pain. Because even in the midst of all that death, he felt comforted. He felt loved. He felt joy. The scripture even says, for the joy set before him. You know, when I have hard times now, I don't, you, know, you never like it when your body feels weak. You're not like, oh, hallelujah, I feel weak. But I tell you what I see now is that there's a joy in God's life that's greater than my despair. And what I start thinking about is, is that life that's going to produce joy in me. I start talking with the Father about the life I shared with Him from the beginning. Imagine that. That's what Jesus did. <laughs> I start talking with the Father about the glory that He shared in Himself from the beginning. And I start talking about how He's seen enough in me that He's made me a partaker with Him in that glory. And I start talking about what that glory does. I start talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. I start talking about how it divides asunder the darkness and how it conquers and swallows the darkness and leads it to where there's nothing left. I start thinking with God about how that life's in me, how he's in me and I'm in him. Imagine that. That's what Jesus prayed, that we would know that just as he was in the Father and the Father was in him, that we would know the Father was in us and we were in him. And why would he pray that we would know that? So that we could have the apocalypse manifested in our heart, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of a life that can't be overcome, and we could see God swore to us when he promised us his life. And we would live by the swear. The swear has some force. Because this dude swore to us his life. Well, look at the substance of his life. My goodness, who has that kind of a life? Who has a life that can overcome death in the flesh? Who has a life that can take an earthy body that can decay and that can be subject to to rust and destruction? Who has a life that can take that kind of a body and make it glorified to where it can never feel weakness or die ever again? Who has that kind of life? God. Oh, okay. That's why the promise is sure. That's why it's sure. Right? It's a difficult thing for humans. Because when we experience hard times, we don't even understand the inner workings of our heart where we, we feel literally like Abraham, what shall you give me, Lord? But where the Holy Spirit is trying to take you is in the place where you connect with the Father and you begin to see the life that's in you and how it's working in you instead of thinking that your life is being overcome, right? Because we're always thinking about everything that's going wrong and how it's stealing from us. Instead of thinking of the immutability of God's determination to work life in us. Right? You guys see that? What the apocalypse is and the revelation of Jesus Christ and why it's a strong comfort to us. And we're supposed to look at that and it's supposed to give us comfort about this earth as we see the wars and the rumors of wars. Right? We're supposed to look at what we see in the earth, but then... Weigh it in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And we begin to see the apocalypse is upon us, right? And I don't mean the destruction of the earth. I mean the destruction of death. And because we've seen the destruction of death inside of the body of Jesus. And that tells us that the life that destroys death has already been planted in this earth. Jesus was a seed that fell into the ground. Was he not? Well, in that he fell into the ground, what went into the ground of this earth? His life. And he brought death into the ground. You see that? That's the refuge. Right? We struggle to to think of that when we see the, the wars and the rumors of wars. And I hope people can connect what they're feeling in the scriptures when they encounter hard times. Because if you start to understand what's happening to you when you encounter hard times, why you feel those heavy emotions, you start to understand what to connect with, 
right? And when, when you're encountering hard times and you feel weak or you feel stressed out or anxious, that's what's going on in you is the same thing that's going on in Abraham. What shall you give me, Lord? The hard times are trying to create a strife and a debate about whether life is working in you. Will I really be decorated in the fruit of the Spirit? Is life really present in me? Is life really being worked out of me? Is life really present in the earth? Look at it all. I mean, we, if we're just honest, what do we say? Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But do you know that contradicts the revelation of Jesus Christ? And so, man, if you want to observe the corruption and see the corruption there, that's fine. But see it in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ and the life he has in himself. So there'll be a strong consolation for you. Right? Glory to God. Thank you, Father, for your life. Thank you, Lord, that you, you keep showing us yourself and the life you have in yourself. That you sent Jesus to show us that. That you poured out your Holy Spirit to show us that. Father, we come together. We come together in one spirit, in one faith, in the faith that was revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. We come together so that we can see the life you have in yourself so that we can have fellowship with that life, Lord, so that we can partake with you in the glory that you've always had from the beginning. Thank you, Father, that that life is a strong consolation for us, that that life begin to quiet all the anxieties in people's hearts, that that life begin to give people a, a certainty, that they begin to see the immutability of your determination to produce life in this earth. I thank you, Father, that people begin to see that their home is safe, that the earth is safe and their home is safe because you've planted your life in this earth. I thank you, Father, that people begin to see that they are safe because they are in your hands. I thank you, Father, that people begin to see that you came and made their body your temple so that you could dwell inside of them and you could keep their temple. You could keep their body. You could keep their life. I thank you, Father, people begin to see that you're inside of them, causing death to pass over them, Lord, and that they can begin to see that even though they see deadness to come knocking at their door, that that they begin to see that nothing can keep you from making them exceedingly fruitful, Lord. I thank you, Father, they begin to see the seed that's dwelling inside of them, and they begin to see you calling forth fruit out of that seed. I thank you, Father, that people begin to see the fruit of your spirit is greater than the pain of sin and death. I thank you, Father, that people begin to see that your faith is greater than the sin in the earth. I thank you, Father, that people begin to see that the fruit of your spirit is greater than the suffering in this earth, and they begin to have an image inside of their hearts when they encounter hard times. They begin to have an image of your life swallowing up the death in the body of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Y'all have a great Thanksgiving.